0: And good morning. Thanks. Thank you all for coming to this talk. It's great to see you all again today. And um, I basically want to, want to pick up from where I ended yesterday. I think I, I set a bit of a global context yesterday. But today, I just want to spend some time talking a bit more specifically about Africa. And um, the energy transition. Um, so, why is why should we be thinking seriously about Africa in the context of the energy transition? What does it mean? Um, what should we be focusing on? What are the opportunities that we shouldn't be missing on the continent as we think about the energy transition, about climate change, and about development? So, I. All right. So I think I'm just going to revisit some of the points I made yesterday uh, about where we stand. Um, Just basically reminding us that we are still not on track to meet our climate targets, not to be pessimistic, but just to put us in a place where we can be pragmatic when we are thinking about what we want to do. So uh, where do we start now? Despite 30 years of climate policy, uh, emissions have increased. And I think I talked about this yesterday as well. And we are continuing to climb post pandemic. Um, even if all countries fulfilled their Glasgow pledges, uh, we are still not on track to meet um, our 1.5 degrees C target. And since we started the UN convention 25 years ago, I mentioned this again um, yesterday, we have seen uh, no change in the use of unabated fossil energy. So basically the base has actually grown, which means that we are putting out much more emissions out there. And again, in the last 25 years, uh, we've seen some shifts. Um, So the West has roughly flattened its um, emissions curves to some extent due to offshoring of emissions to developing economies. Um, But we have also seen developing countries like China, India really grow in emissions over the same period. And uh, what we are also seeing is that a lot of the decarbonization scenarios, talking about what comes out of the IEA uh, from the European Commission, are making what I call the unrealistic assumption that Africa will remain energy poor for a long time. So that's how those models are actually uh, reaching their net zero targets, um, assuming that some regions in the world are going to stay poor for a long time. And what we see in the field of uh, climate change advocacy as well, um, what is philanthropy doing? What has philanthropy been doing over the years? Um, so uh, this is uh, this beautiful um, chart out here shows us the proportion of you know which money where philanthropy goes what goes where. So most of the funds for climate philanthropy, as we see, has been going to the U.S. and Europe. Has gone to the U.S. and Europe, and um, we see smaller proportions going to Africa, to India, to Indonesia, to China. And uh, this is for several reasons. I mean, I think that the, the, the climate movement really kind of arose out of, the, out of the West. And there's also this thinking that because of the historic emissions from these regions, we need to be pushing a lot of effort there. So not much attention is being given to what's happening in the, developing, in the developed world, but of course also sometimes people want to fund uh, what's happening in their own countries as well. Um, so there's been a huge focus on the US and the EU. Um, it's been quite an elite conversation to a very large extent. Um, a lot of folks in Africa are coming to this conversation um, at initially most viewed it as you know, a conversation that people have uh, when they have enough to eat, basically. Um, very far removed from the realities of the lives of many people. And um, to the extent that we saw a focus outside of the US and the EU, what we, we've seen largely is this push uh, to implement developed world policies in the developing world. So what are the climate policies which have worked in Germany? Um, and how do we implement those same climate policies in Kenya? How do we implement them in Ghana or wherever it is um, in the developed world? And to a very large extent too, um, we have failed to embrace uh, technological inclusivity. I talked about that uh, yesterday, uh, that we have failed to look at the entire spectrum of, of, um, of zero carbon sources that we should be looking at as we think about the energy transition. So this just uh, to remind us a bit uh, of the context and I'm going to, so what does it mean um, in given current conversations that we are having in the climate space? The net zero agenda. So last year the IEA published uh, its report, the net zero by 2050 report. And um, it's uh, just ahead of Glasgow and it was a hugely impactful report. Um, we basically what it said was that everybody across the globe should be aiming to go net zero by 2050. And so uh, these two graphs are looking at cumulative CO2 emissions and CO2 emissions per capita, per head. So for cumulative CO2 emissions, um, what the net zero agenda is asking all countries to do, whether you are advanced or you are emerging in the developed market, is to bring down your cumulative emissions to zero by 2050. And the same for per capita emissions. But we realize that countries are not starting at the same point. So um, the advanced economies have much higher CO2 emissions to begin with, and they are driving it down. At the same time, per capita CO2 emissions are much higher for advanced economies and much lower, of course, for developing economies. In some countries in Africa, I always give the example of Burundi and Chad, CO2 emissions per capita are actually close to zero, and actually zero in some of of the countries. So this is the context for uh, the net zero transition, and what has been uh, the response? I mean, before Glasgow, we saw Many announcements come out, both at the country level and uh, from, uh, from the private sector as well. So at the country level, China, for instance, pledged to stop all overseas financing of coal. Um, the U.S. Treasury has issued guidance to the World Bank, uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, asking them not to fund um, some types of natural gas and coal projects. Uh, the EU announced plans to limit investments in fossil fuels. I think uh, given the current crisis, it's walking back a little bit and exploring natural gas in some parts of uh, West Africa. At the same time, the private sector also came up with really interesting uh, announcements. So GM said, We are going all electric vehicles by 2035. Um, In the EU, we saw countries adopt their net zero target and over 1,500 companies also uh, announced net zero ambitions by 2050. So what was happening uh, in in other parts of the world while all these announcements were going on? uh, We began to see a polarization of the conversation. So uh, in the West, we saw a lot of Western CSOs really congratulating what was happening, saying, you know, this is what we need. Um, It's great that um, the world is stopping the the financing of fossil fuels. Let's move forward. Um, This is to be applauded. Um, we saw that happening um, in in the in the Western media. At the same time, we saw a totally different narrative arising um, in Africa, specifically. So uh, we saw um, the from the government, the president of Uganda to the president of Nigeria, they actually rose up and began to write up all these op-eds, which were saying that you know this is unfair you cannot ask us to go net zero by 2050. And so we began to see uh, what was a very polarized um, discussion around climate action in Africa. And is that helpful? Um, I think the reason for that is clear. Um, Going back to the graphs that I showed for um, as go uh, pursuing the net zero transition, looking at both cumulative and cap- per capita emissions. But um, is that the way to go? Um, perhaps not. And i like to use this example um, just to kind of help to situate um, the, the thinking around what happens when uh, we have these polarized conversations. And I always use this example from China. Um, and the U.S. and the dynamics of climate action between those two countries when we had polarized debates. So in 1997, um, just uh, when countries were adopting the Kyoto Protocol and the U.S. Senate um, said that you know, the U.S. is not going to commit to anything unless uh, developing countries did the same, really thinking about China. And basically between uh, 1997 and 2014, uh, when the US and China both agreed to emissions reductions, nothing happened between those two countries who were the highest emitters because there was no common ground to have any conversation. Now, fast forward from 1997 uh, to 2020, we basically saw during that period of inaction We saw China grow uh, in terms of GDP from less than 1 trillion to uh, approximately 14.7 trillion. But China also moved from just emitting 3.5 billion metric tons of CO2 per year to become the leading uh, emitter of GHG emissions globally. And um, uh, part of the reason for this uh, was that there was no common ground for a conversation around climate change. So um, what does that polarised debate can be costly in that sense. And um, I always say that as we pursue the same conversations in Africa and in other developing economies, we always have to remember uh, that when we pursue a course um, that is relevant to us all, we should at at all costs um, try to avoid this polarisation. But uh, this polarisation also happens for a reason. Um, I think that to a large extent, um, the climate movement, as it has arisen, has really been driven to a large extent in some quarters very strongly um, by ideology and by a moral authority campaign. Um, we've, uh, to some extent, lacked pragmatism in places where we should have had some more of it. And so what happened is that uh, we sometimes are pushing climate action and climate policies which really do not at all take the real world economic uh, situations of of communities, of countries into practice. And that tends to lead to a polarized conversation. It tends to lead to no action. So uh, with that context in mind, I just want to talk a bit about the African context a bit more deeply and why is climate action in Africa very different? And uh, why is it important that we have that context in mind if we are going to be impactful with climate action in, in globally, actually. So um, a bit of context, so Africa uh, has the lowest level of energy use globally. Uh, we have the lowest per capita energy use um, as a region uh, compared to India, China, uh, Vietnam, and Indonesia. Uh, we see that on the graph here. And certainly nowhere near uh, OECD consumption at all. And the UN is projecting that uh, by the turn of the century, we could have up to four billion people living in Africa. And um, just to kind of make that more tangible, that means that one, if you, uh, you are going to have two out of every three people that you meet on this planet being African. By 2050, it's projected that we are going to have three out of four people that we meet on this planet being African due to the growth in population. And um, so Africa is going to be accounting for, what, 40% of the globe's human footprint. And um, at the same time, we have a really serious problem with energy poverty and underdevelopment. Um, So 75% of the entire global population without energy access uh, found in Sub-Saharan Africa, that's close to 600 million people today. And um, if we take a total of all the least developed countries, LDCs, um, 33 or 46 found in Sub-Saharan Africa. And again, if we took all other indicators of development, talk about health, talk about education, talk about access to sanitation, talk about infrastructure, anything, anything development at all, um, Africa trails the world in all of those development indicators. And at the same time, um, even though the region has contributed least um, to CO2 emissions, um, we are also the most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. And for those who follow uh, news in Africa, you see what happened uh, in, in, in Mozambique with the floods. Um, there was a close to serious famine in Northern Kenya, recently Madagascar. And there are serious uh, shifts in weather and climate patterns in, in Africa. So the felt impacts of climate is really tangible in the region, um, despite the fact that uh, our contribution has been low over the years. This is um, this, uh, this is some analysis we are still working on at CATF. Um, so if you look at the first graph alone, it's like total CO2 emissions in sub-Saharan Africa is growing. Um, but if you compare those emissions across world regions, across OECD and the world, you basically see that um, it's Africa's contribution is is insignificant uh, compared to what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, at the same time, our sectoral emission patterns are different, and Here I I noticed that um, this one is supposed to be this light blue color with a legend, so just keep that in mind. So if you look at the US and the EU, most of the emissions uh, in the the GHG emissions are coming from the energy sector. That's the biggest driver of emissions uh, in those two regions. If you compare to Africa, it's different. Actually emissions from the energy sector are less uh, than emissions uh, coming from agriculture and land use change in Africa. And why is that land use change? Uh, Most of it is because of cutting down of uh, trees for firewood uh, for cooking. So that is driving emissions uh, on the continent, but emissions from energy remains low basically because infrastructure for energy is low and access to energy is low as well. So the dynamics are different uh, in, in that context. And again, um, African regions are also not homogeneous, very, very different as you move across. So from North Africa to South Africa, to the east to the west, um, Everything is is so different, even in terms of what energy sources countries and regions are using. So, in South Africa, we see a huge prominence of uh, of fossil energy, nuclear to some extent, um, and renewables now coming up. In East Africa, the greater quite clean. In Kenya, for instance, up to 97% of the energy being produced in Kenya now is renewable. Um, Over 50% of it is coming from geothermal energy. And in Central Africa and West Africa, there's still a huge dependence on fossil energy, mostly uh, thermal production, uh, and in North Africa as well. So in terms of cleaning the grid, think uh, South Africa, North Africa are key places for us to think about how we clean up the grid. Now, Africa expects to grow, Um, despite the assumptions that we have in the models um, out there, which assume that consumption is going to remain very low over a long period of time. This is very inconsistent with the vision that African leaders have for their countries or even what the continental vision is through the African Union. So uh, these are just a few numbers. We are going to have up to 21 billion people in Africa by 2040. Um, we are looking at a more urban population, not a rural population. Um, most of the time in, in development thinking and even in energy thinking, the assumption is that because Africa is very rural, uh, we need to think of a more rural-type energy systems to respond to the needs there. But The continent is changing very, very rapidly. Uh, We have close to 60% going to be living in urban areas by 2050. This has huge implications for energy demand, for heating, for cooling, for transportation. And uh, it has to be factored into the models and into our planning. Um, Africa expects to see a growth in investment up to 43% by 2030. I think this may be revised down uh, post-COVID. Um, but this is the African Union vision for Africa 2060. Um, and then we are also expecting to see a growth in household consumption again. I think this will be impacted by uh, by what happened with COVID. But basically we need to see an increase in electricity. Uh, we need to see an increase in electricity supply to meet up with the projected demand uh, due to growth uh, in consumption in manufacturing and even at the household level. So So the vision from within Africa, in African countries and amongst African leaders, even at the continental level, is very different from what is reflected in a lot of the global discourse. So um, given this context then, what are the potential pathways uh, that Africa could potentially find itself on? And um, here I I like to talk about three potential pathways. Um, The first one being that we will continue to see very low energy consumption. And um, that is because we are having people still live in poverty without access to the electricity and the cooking fuels that they need. But if we think about the fact that we are going to have Africa account for the greatest share of the world's population, that we are really dramatically increasing the number of the world's poor in that world. There's also going to be a potentially second scenario uh, where Africa grows, but where that energy is going to come from fossil fuels. And so we will see then a significant increase in GHG emissions coming from the continent in that context. And then there's also a potentially Uh, a potential third scenario where we see increase in per capita um, energy consumption, a growth in that, but where that growth is met with zero-carbon technology options. So the question is, um, which path is Africa going to be taking? And um, what is our role in, uh, what do we see as the viable option for the continent to take and how can we make sure that we are building the foundation that places the continent on the right path? So um, I'll start by saying um, that um, we need to rethink what the energy transition means in the African context. So I mentioned um, in my previous uh, in my comments earlier that what we have seen in a lot in the dominant discourse is that the assumption is that Africa is going to be It is poor, it's largely rural, and that is going to be around for a long time. So a lot of the solutions have focused on pushing um, small scale systems, which are really useful um, if you go into areas where there's basically zero access. Um, But we shouldn't see them as an end in themselves, uh, because, that will not be able to by themselves fulfill or meet the the vision that Africa has. So um, basically I want to talk here a bit about the fact that, you know, we need a lot of options on the table for the continent if we want to follow that third scenario. Um, so here I I am um, it's a comparison this is analysis by um, uh, very good partners in uh, in Kenya EED advisory so basically what they do here is try to compare uh, what energy transitions look like in an advanced economy that's what we have here in the horizontal transition and uh, in in African economies right here. So I'm gonna take time and just go through it. So basically what's happening here in an advanced economy is that you have demand uh, which is predictable, it's stable, it's relatively flat because the economy is advanced. So if you came in and said, well, we want to increase the share of renewables in this economy, what you are trying to do here is you are basically phasing out coal and um, trying to phase out gas over time as well, and replacing that with renewables. But what you have on that type of grid is stable demand. It's a well-established grid system, and so, and you basically also have. Um, um, energy sources which are able to provide you the base load you need. So you have gas in there, you have coal in there, and the planets you are basically going to shave that off as you go along. So um, the biggest challenge with uh, intermittent renewables, that's solar and wind, is basically the fact that it's variable. Uh, the sun and the wind may not be blowing all the time. Um, so you need those base load sources, basically to help you as you develop your battery systems, as you develop your storage systems, you need a system that is able to manage that intermittency. And that's what we have in a lot of the advanced economies. And even then there are challenges still. So basically your demand is flat and all you are doing is trying to gradually replace some of the fossil energy with variable renewable energy sources. Now, if you go to, the grid in a lot of African countries. It's very different. So we are starting from a very low base. We have so many people with zero access. And we are trying to scale that access, let's say by a factor of four by 2050 from where we are. So we are growing that from a low base of um, fossil energy, whether it's coal, gas, uh, and some renewables. And we are quickly trying to scale renewables in that sense, while at the same time increasing demand. And we are doing this on grid systems which are underdeveloped, which are outdated. So basically, uh, we are trying to push a transition that um, the grid systems here are not ready to take as yet. So this is a, a very important distinction uh, between for us to think about when we you know, when we think of advancing uh, renewable energy sources in the region and to understand exactly what it is uh, that those transitions look like. So again, um, I think repeating what I said yesterday, we need all options to be on the table. If we are thinking about a zero-carbon economy for, uh, for Africa, we need to think about all options equally. And we need to think about how we replace base load for base load. So if we are taking away coal, if we are taking away natural gas over time, what are the baseload options which could be replaced there? Um, so in Kenya, there's a huge growth in the geothermal market. Uh, they are looking to a view to expand that in the East African Rift Valley. Uh, what are the options for the other African countries um, who uh, maybe say in the West or in Central Africa? How do we replace base load for base load to make that transition possible? So, that that's the big question for us. And um, that is the holistic way to think about the energy transition in Africa. How do we build the foundation for us to adopt this entire suite of options? on the African continent and uh, not thinking that the continent is not ready yet for all of this. How do we begin to build the foundations for for this so that in the next 15 or 20 years, uh, when the continent is growing, becoming really urban quickly, and we are seeing a spike in demand, that we are ready to be able to address the energy needs with zero carbon sources. And in addition to this, in the African context, um, it's not just about the zero-carbon technologies themselves. We need a more systems approach, which looks at how we strengthen even the utility systems in the country. In the countries, so most African countries have utilities which are. Uh, operating uh, infrastructure which is outdated, utilities are not financially viable, we need institutional change uh, to be able to ensure that these uh, utilities are functioning well. Otherwise, it doesn't even matter what type of energy source you put on there. Utilities, are not uh, ill-functioning utilities will not be able to sustain that. Again, we need to think about investment in national and regional transmission infrastructure when we think about the energy transition, energy access. And why does this matter? This is extremely important if we are to build resilience uh, for the energy transition on the continent. So if you take a region like West Africa, some of the countries are completely landlocked, no hydro resources at all. They are fully dependent uh, on thermal generation, importing oil uh, for thermal generation. Well, if we had a better interconnected system, um, those countries could be able to benefit from a neighboring country which has more renewables. Even if it's hydro, if it's geothermal, super hot truck, geothermal, whatever it is, we can be able to transmit our cleaner energy sources over the regional infrastructure into the different countries. So it's easier for us to achieve our energy transition goals if we have well-functioning regional energy market. And thirdly, we also need to focus on the interlinkages between um, energy and other development sectors. That is usually missing uh, in conversations about the energy transition, and so uh, we see conversations about the energy transition, which basically are blind to the development challenges on the continent, because we fail to recognize that there is an intricate link between development and energy, and it's even more pertinent uh, in developing economies in places like Africa. How do we make sure that we are maximizing those interconnections? And again, um, investment in technology and research development on the continent. Um, I had a graph, I think I took it out mistakenly and just noticed that, but it's showing that, basically it was showing the fraction of uh, GDP in Africa which goes to research and development. It's less than one uh, in a lot of countries. Zero, actually, for a lot of African countries. And uh, this is troubling uh, because We cannot advance uh, the energy transition and have a continent which is eternally positioned as a consumer of technologies. So how do we position the uh, the African continent to actively participate in the research and the innovation that we need to advance the clean, energy, uh, uh, um, the clean energy future that we need. I mentioned yesterday, Africa has a huge youth population. Over 40% of Africans are under the age of 15. So what can we do with the youth to be able to advance research, to be able to advance um, uh, innovation within the continent, within African universities? So um, just uh, to round up a bit um, what I have mentioned before, um, given what uh, I have spoken about, um, how do we think about effective climate action? Uh, Effective climate action must work economically and socially for the non-ECD world. We need to look beyond what's happening in the US and the EU alone to think about what's happening in the rest of the world, in developing economies. And uh, we need to play to differentiated regional strengths. There's a no one size fits all approach. We need to understand local context so that we adopt approaches that work technically and logistically feasible systems thinking extremely relevant um, as we think about it. And in Africa, as I said, it's not just a technology question. It's a question of institutions. It's a question of what happens with our utilities. It's a question of interconnections between energy and development. And it should be risk-informed and option-based. I mentioned that yesterday, that the reason why we need more options on the table and not less is because it helps us to hedge against risk. So if we find out in the end that, oh, mine, super hot geothermal was a really bad idea, at least we would have found out that we have other options which are well-developed on the plate for us to move forward with. And of course, it has to have buy-in across industrial, political, and civil society. So, um, towards the just, I won't spend too much time on this. I think uh, most of this will perhaps figure um, show up again in the in the discussions after. But just some elements for us to think about uh, as we think about the just transition in Africa. Visioning. Um, how do we think about what exactly goes into the just transition? How do we bring? How do we build strategies that work? Uh, what are the coalitions that we are putting together? I'll talk a bit about that and how we think about it at Clean Air Task Force. Uh, what are the planning tools? Uh, how are we doing, building up different models uh, which take development into account? And how are we impacting policy? How are we impacting markets? Um, and how are we thinking about training, innovation, and entrepreneurship um, for the energy transition in Africa? So on this last slide, I will just talk a bit about you know, our work uh, in Africa, at CATF, um, so people know what exactly it is that we are doing. So we are focused on four areas. Uh, have them listed up here. So we start with the research. Um, How do we reframe the challenge? And how do we build an alternative vision of what is needed in Africa? So uh, we have what we call the energy development and transitions pillar, and what we are doing with this pillar, we have a team of uh, economists and modelers basically trying to break apart a lot of the existing models that we have, whether it's from the IEA, whether it's from the European Commission, and trying to understand the assumptions behind those models. And what we are saying is that what do Africans want? You know, what does the Nigerian government want? And how do we factor that into our analysis? So we are spending a lot of time on that. What does a model for Africa's energy transition, which assumes a rich and prosperous Africa look like? And what does it mean for the emissions curves that we are looking at globally? Does it put us off track? If it does, what do we need? Are we really going to be able to achieve net zero by 2050 if we have a more realistic vision of where Africa wants to go? So we are doing that, building both at the regional and country-specific levels. And then we have a second pillar, which is focused on technology innovation. And there, we are working particularly with African universities and institutions of higher learning. And uh, we think about this as innovation hubs. We started out in West and East Africa, and working with them around the advanced technologies that I mentioned before because we believe that technology innovation must be indigenous to the African continent for it to be impactful. Um, So if we took, uh, whether it's geothermal, if we took hydrogen, so we are even looking at the hydrogen question, what does it even mean? in an African context, does it make sense? Is it a viable option economically? And asking those questions, working closely with African academics on these questions in African institutions of higher learning. Again, uh, how do we commercialize technologies for zero carbon um, options? Uh, we are doing, looking at this, this question as well uh, in the context of advanced geothermal. And then the third pillar is looking at utilities, uh, regional integration and demand stimulation. So looking at that institutional piece, we are working with utilities uh, in West Africa. We are doing Nigeria, Ghana, Liberia and Senegal. And in East Africa, we are working with Kenya and Rwanda. We are starting off with background studies, trying to understand what the lay of land is. How, what can utilities do to improve their performance and financial health? Again, we are working uh, on strengthening power pools uh, in, in regional power pools. What does it take? Working with the West Africa power pool and the East African power pool on the same question of regional integration. And then finally, uh, on the interconnections between energy and other sectors, uh, working closely with utilities and other CNI consumers, how do we boost consumption and drive down the per unit cost of power uh, if we are able to bring on more demand onto the grid? And then finally, we also do work uh, looking at thought leadership, uh, policy advocacy, and Our approach is really to think about how we build local partnerships and how we drive change through local partnerships. So it's not about CATF uh, putting its name on everything. Most of the time it's about who our partners are, how we build those coalitions for change, and how we equip them and work with them to build the tools for advocacy that is needed to change the narrative around decarbonization in in Sub-Saharan Africa. So we are doing this um, on several levels, at the national level, at the sub-national level, and also at the global level. Uh, what does inclusive energy access mean and how can we have a more inclusive decarbonization agenda that is tailored to Africa's development needs? So this is how we are thinking. Um, uh, this is how we are trying to contribute uh, a little to the challenge in clean air task force, and I look forward to discussing further with you all. Thank you.
1: Wow, that was great. Thank you. Thank you. That was really good. Um, We've got a fair few questions uh, coming through SopCard. I've got a few questions myself, um, so we'll work through them. The first one uh, was actually about one of the infographics. 21 billion people in Africa. Um, 21 billion? 2.1? Okay, I just wanted (laughs) to... I was curious, and people asked, and I just wanted the to clarify that. The world would break that.
0: apart with 21 <laughs> billion people.
1: <laughs> 2, 2.1 for those yes. who were curious. Um, cool. So, uh, I, I am going to indulge in a, a personal question, and we have a lot to get through. Uh, for quite a long time now, uh, economies like the US, the EU, China, they've been really important in providing funding for infrastructure in Africa. Um, how do you see their importance going forward providing funding for infrastructure for this transition? and uh, which do you see leading the charge in that, you know, which do you see as uh, as uh, doing doing good work?
0: Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I, I'll start by saying that um, the US and the EU specifically have been really impactful in terms of shaping, um, the energy infrastructure in Africa and even the structure of our utilities. So um, a lot of African utilities were started off as you know, vert- vertically integrated utilities and were unbundled, uh, mostly because of World Bank and IMF policies. So there's a huge influence, uh, Western influence, in terms of the structure of our energy market and in terms of what our energy infrastructure looks like most of the projects um, in in Africa, energy infrastructure has some US or EU imprint on it. And I think as we walk into uh, the energy transition period as well, we are seeing the same thing happening. One of the reasons why... Um, uh solar is kind of doing well in Africa is because uh, Germany is really behind the push for that. Uh, we are seeing an interest in the German uh, government in hydrogen, so it's being explored in Namibia. So, to a large extent, I think that the the agenda and the infrastructure, what goes into the infrastructure is really shaped by who gives you the money. So we are seeing recently uh, China invest in a lot of infrastructure projects uh, in Africa. Most of it um, has been in the transportation sector. Uh, there's been some investments uh, in, in coal infrastructure as well um, and some renewables infrastructure. It's always hard um, to actually verify some of the, the data from the Chinese investments because we are not too sure um, you know if if it's actually telling of what's happening on the ground, but um, I I would say that there has always been you know a lot of external influence in shaping what that infrastructure looks like. Now there's a point at which um, it's not helpful if you do not have a sense of what works for you as a country or as a region. Because uh, in in the world of international aid, what we've seen is basically just a transfer of what has worked for me to you. Uh, But what what I think is needed now is for us to have an African vision for what works for Africa and see how that can meet what is being done in the world of international development, international aid or even in the world of philanthropy, because if we don't have a blueprint of where we want to go as a starting point, I know that there are always political reasons, there are are power imbalances, which make it hard sometimes for governments to push for what they want. But I think that fundamentally we need a vision of, Africa, where we want it to go, and what we want it to be. So for the energy transition, and that's why we are spending time doing this energy transitions modeling that at the country level and at the regional level, we can't just take analysis from the IEA and say that This is what it means. All countries in Africa are going net zero by 2050. Some countries have nothing to transition from, you know, and and so it doesn't even make sense to them in that context. So what is needed in different regions vary. In some places, we are going to think about how we prioritize scaling up energy access really rapidly and thinking about what we build that scaling up on uh, because they are now building their infrastructure. So there's an opportunity to focus on energy infrastructure that makes sense for development, that can power industries as we think ahead about what's needed. So I'll say that um, we don't have to sit back and just look to what can be done uh, by the international community. We need to build a vision of what we want and uh, then, you know, basically see who can help us achieve that. And even beyond that, I think that there's a lot that can be done locally. Um, The the Ethiopian government has has recently built up a a project, the new uh, Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, just basically sourcing funds from Ethiopians. So... We need to also think creatively about, you know, how we, we source funding and support for the projects that happen. So it's it's many things, but I think that we need to see more African leadership. We need to see greater African thinking in shaping what we need to move forward in the energy transition.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I look forward to seeing these plans as they come out. Uh, which 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 brings me to the question, what countries and what regions in Africa are really receptive to the climate transition who is who is bringing these african ideas to the forefront who's talking about who who's making the transition now you know who who is coming up with these innovative ideas who's receptive to your work what countries governments and regions
0: so basically what we are seeing is the countries which can easily transition are generally more receptive so if you go to east africa for instance where Uh, you have huge amounts of uh, geothermal, uh, where you have rich hydro resources, where you have rich solar and wind resources you find that governments are more eager to engage with the energy transitions um, discussions. And if you go to countries like Nigeria, where there's a huge dependence on a fossil economy, um, you don't exactly find the same thing. I don't think it's because those governments don't want to engage climate conversations. I think it's because we do not approach them with viable and practical options. So if we are asking um, the Nigerian government and to think about a transition from oil and gas um, and we are not presenting them options which um, make them you know comfortable that they are not going to lose a large share of their national revenue you know it becomes hard to convince anyone to be able to follow you on that path. And so, at that point, you have countries basically pulling the card, saying, "You know, I didn't cause this problem; just lead me to develop." But there is another side of it that, you know, whether or not we have contributed the most of the emissions, we are going to be the most impacted. And if you have communities who are poor, who, if you have um, regions which lack the infrastructure, then you are less resilient to climate disasters when they happen. So it's, it's a difficult situation, but um, at this point, I think a lot of African governments are trying to basically toe the path of least resistance. So if you are in Kenya and you have a lot of geothermal, it's like, we we already got this. And you find other places which uh, are more dependent on, on the fossil uh, economies, towing the path more carefully South Africa uh, basically has been forced to move out of the coal economy because it was it was uneconomical but we've seen what that impact has been on jobs in the South African economy mm. for example yeah yeah
1: that's that's interesting um, uh, it's really interesting you bring up the, the grand Renaissance stem um, do you do you find that these countries they're they're towing the line within their own country or are they also able to you know, cooperate and collaborate across the continent. I know there's been a lot of controversy around the dam, given given it runs down. Um, yeah, How, do, you, do you find that there's a lot of regional cooperation or do you find that it's a little bit of a, you know, us, us or them kind of mentality or yeah. it differs?
0: I mean, the, the challenge with regional cooperation not always, I mean, there are huge governance issues with that because... To a large extent and when it comes to things like energy countries want their sovereignty and don't want to feel that they are depending on another country for uh for their energy needs in that sense so it's it's always even though it's it's necessary and it's been around for a long time. I think sometimes countries approach it with a bit of caution. In East Africa, though, I think that um, there there has been quite some success with regional integration of the grid, especially looking at Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Rwanda, Uganda. There's been quite some success around that in West Africa. I mean, Ghana, Ivory Coast, Togo, has been. We've been trading in electricity like since the '80s, so it's not anything new. But um, I think that some of the political issues, like what you have with the the Renaissance, then, I mean, that's actually outside even of the boundaries of the East African power pool. It's it's a it's a really cross country or cross regional um, um, dynamic that you have there, and um, I think sometimes, like even with Ethiopian governments, like always struggle about how much of external influence is shaping that dynamic. So you end up with a, a lot of mistrust in some of the, those contexts. But um, we've seen really well functioning regional electricity markets for a long time in Africa. It always fails, mostly because countries can no longer put a lot of electricity on the grid. So Ghana, for instance, couldn't supply Togo and Ivory Coast anymore because we went into power crisis and we just could not sustain that regional market.
1: Um, It's interesting that there's been a lot of uh, regional integration in East Africa. Uh, We we may even see the emergence of the East African Federation in time. Uh, It'll be be interesting to see if uh, that, that emerges. We uh, I have so many more questions, and we have so many more on swap card, but uh, oh, we, we do silver time. Oh, okay, awesome. Uh, oh, more questions to come. Um, I think another question we had come up was, uh, in Australia we talk a lot about there being a huge need for there to be uh, a really big leap, a really really large amounts of progress in technology. Uh, do do you and Clean Air Task Force, you know, how much progress do you think that needs to be made? I know last night you said we, we have the technology, but we're not implementing it. Or do you, is, there a lot, is there a lot to still be researched? Or do we have it now? You know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that different technologies I, I very different stages um, and if you take uh, geothermal for instance um, there's huge experience Kenya for instance has been ex- was experimenting with geothermal as far back as the 60s so it's not something new at all for Kenya, It's n- Kenya is not doing advanced geothermal, like super hot rock geothermal at all, but sometimes you've realized that the, the, the scaffold for you to think about an advanced technology building on an existing system is there so we could easily say that okay let's go in there and try to see what we can try to explore deeper in that context with Kenya some of the technologies you take uh, advanced nuclear may be in different stages of, of advancement in terms of where you could apply it and the point is not just to take everything and try to implement it everywhere I think that you still need that regional context to shape what it is that you need and that's why we still need to think about you know how do we decarbonize fossil energy, for instance? So in Nigeria um, or in Mozambique, in Angola, these are huge oil and gas um, uh, countries. When we think about the energy transition, is that a place where we can begin to think about CCS? Uh, realize that those are not conversations at all that are happening uh, in Africa at all. Um, Nigeria is building its refinery recently. We have Dangote building um, the cement industry at a really huge scale. How are we thinking about industrial decarbonization? I think if we feel, if we be if we start from the point that, you know, everything is out of reach, uh, then we don't even begin. But we are trying to see what we can do. Can we get some of these private sector actors to begin considering or even contributing to the research and the development around some of these advanced technologies. So there's still some work to be done here here and there. But I think that the hope that we have is that at least we have some initial scaffold to work on. And we are not starting from a point of nothing. Um, sometimes there are a lot of political hurdles why technologies don't make inroads. And we need to think about how we take away some of those political hurdles and how we are able to build systems uh, which um, you know, investors will find more attractive uh, to support for some of these
1: technologies. Well, Lily, I, I have to say, I, your optimism it inspires me. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're optimistic. We do have to, we do have to wrap up. Um, So thank you. Please join me thanking Lily.
0: Thank you.